Hello, and welcome to the Deathcast. I'm your host, best-selling author and journalist Ian Tott, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take a look at another new-to-us case. This week we are going to be looking at the life and crimes of white supremacist Chevy Kehoe. Before we dive into the case, however, as always, I have the normal plugs and show notes. If you would like to join the show's mailing list, just go to corpsecreekpublishing.com and click on the sign-up button. It's a great way to get in contact with me if you have any questions on cases that I have covered or you have a case that you would like me to look into. Believe it or not, many of the cases that I cover on this show do in fact come in from listener suggestions. While you're there, if you would like to donate to the show, just click on the donate button, buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes. It really does help offset the cost of producing and distributing this show. In case you haven't noticed, there are very few ads on this show, and one of the reasons for that is we are a hair too dark for most sponsors, but whatever, that is their loss. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever it is you get your favorite podcast, and also subscribe If you leave a five-star review on places such as Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict, I will read them out on the air, give you a shout-out. I know we have had a number of five-star reviews lately. Unfortunately, though, nobody has written in anything, so I can't give you props for giving me props. If you are interested in following me on social media just search for the death cast ian totten or author or corpse creek publishing i'm on pretty much everything whether it be instagram facebook youtube tiktok so just search for one of those three and you'll find me all right now that all of that is out of the way get yourself something to drink kick back relax close your eyes i've got my coffee i've got my cigarettes let's go into the crypt so chevy kehoe besides the fact that he has one of the most white trash names possible he really was a product of the white power resurgence that took place in the 1970s and the 1980s in the United States, specifically in the southern states. And he actually comes from a family of white supremacists. There is some information out there trying to paint him in a little bit of a rosier picture than reality would suggest, with one commentator stating that He wasn't born to hate, he was taught how to. Well, reality is, if you were born into those situations and you were inundated with that type of ideology, you really are born to hate because it's all that you know. So Chevy O'Brien Kehoe was born January 29th, 1973 in Orange Park, Florida. He was the oldest of eight children born to... Kirby and Gloria Kehoe. Chevy's father was a white supremacist, and he 
named his son after his favorite vehicle, which is Chevy trucks. Chevy's father, Kirby, was a mechanic who had served during Vietnam in the United States Navy. And not long after his firstborn came into this world, he moved the family to Madison County, North Carolina. And it seems that they stayed in this area for some period of time. Kind of difficult to tell with the family, as with so many other white supremacists, they moved around a lot. Now, it's been said that Chevy was an honor student, uh, but his parents, who increasingly got into the whole anti-government white supremacist ideology, would pull the boys out of school for periods of time so that they could homeschool them as they were fearful that their children were going to be indoctrinated by the government. And it doesn't appear as though the boys had many friends outside of the family and outside of those who had a similar mindset as their parents. Eventually in 1985, Kirby Kehoe moved the family to Stevens County, Washington, and Chevy was allowed to enter high school, going to Colville Junior High School, which he began in 1987. At some point during this period of time, the Kehoe family began getting involved in the Christian Identity Movement, which is really a subset within the white supremacist movement. And I discussed this briefly during the series I did on the Oklahoma City bombing. Really, it's a perversion of Christianity so that the Aryan race is put up as God's chosen people. And basically, adherence to this ideology use it as a means to justify any actions that they may take against other races who they view as inferior. During this period of time, Kehoe would end up becoming acquainted with, and some accounts state very good friends with, another infamous individual, that being the chicken shit serial killer Israeli Keys, whose family was also involved in the Christian identity movement and who actually went to school with Chevy and his brothers. After moving to Washington and attending school for one year, the family again pulled their sons from public schools and finished out their education at home, homeschooling all of them. Being inundated with all of the things that the family was involved in, insofar as the white power movement and the Christian identity movement, Chevy began looking for heroes within this movement. He saw individuals who had committed acts of extreme terror against the United States government, all in the name of the white race, as individuals that he wanted to model his life after. 
One of these individuals, at least according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, was an individual by the name of Robert J. Matthews. Matthews was a neo-Nazi who was the leader of an organization called the Order. The Order was your atypical militia group who pretty much lived on the fringes of society, much as with the Kehoe family, he moved around quite a bit. And eventually, in 1982, he created this group called the Order. Matthews was a pretty big deal within the white resistance movement, being revered by members of the National Alliance, who, if you'll recall from other episodes on this type of topic, really was the largest white power group within the United States for many decades. They're the organization that would go to rock and roll concerts and hand out CDs to fans in the hopes that those who were going to these concerts would like the message that they heard within the music and then seek out those who were distributing this music. So at one point, this Matthews character, he actually gives a speech at the National Alliance's annual convention where he talked about how he was trying to recruit various individuals from the blue-collar workers of America, particularly farmers and long-haul truckers. This group was responsible for numerous robberies, such as knocking off adult bookstores and armored cars. They would also counterfeit money in order to fund their activities. This money would be used to buy weaponry and print up pamphlets as well as support other white power organizations that they felt were worthy of receiving some of the funds. So you can see it's kind of this guerrilla warfare tactics that they were using, but eventually the order came to an end when one of their members was arrested and decided to become an informant for the federal government. Eventually, on December 7th, 1984, Matthews was cornered in a safe house near Freeland, Washington, which is on Whidbey Island. Negotiations were begun, but Matthews refused to come out, and a major firefight ensued. The house was eventually set on fire after an FBI agent fired flares into it, which set off boxes of ammunition and hand grenades. Matthews refused even then to surrender, and he eventually perished in the flames. So this is one of the individuals that Chevy Kehoe was looking up to as his anti-government, anti-other-race mentality was forming in the early to mid-1980s. Some accounts have it that by the end of the 1980s, Chevy had begun to drift away from his father's ideology as he became increasingly 
embroiled within the white power movement. Eventually, he ended up meeting a man by the name of Jake Settle, who shared the Kehoe family's beliefs. Some sources state that Kehoe began to look up to the older Jake and see him as both a role model and a father figure. Jake was attending meetings of an organization known as the Aryan Nations, which had at one point included Bob Matthews as one of its members. The Aryan Nations were similar to all of these other white nationalist organizations. They believed in a coming race war and that the white man was the rightful ruler of not only North America, but of the world, and that all other races would be subjugated to them after this coming race war. So they, to the young Chevy Kehoe and his brothers, this was a really fantastical idea that they clung to. One piece of Chevy's ideology that was not really in the mainstream of those within the Christian identity white power movement, however, was polygamy. He argued really to anyone that would listen that it was allowed in biblical times and it fit well with the Christian identity ideology that he subscribed to. It seems that during this period of time, Chevy worked various odd jobs. It is known that he began rocking a truly ridiculous-looking mullet as well as smoking weed, which is, at least from my encounters with individuals inside of those organizations, really uh, against their doctrine. They believe in, you know this pure mind, pure body bullshit. Chevy ends up marrying a woman by the name of Tr Katrina Gum, and they set about having children as, in Chevy's mind, the best way to both raise an army and ensure the continuation of the white race was to have as many children as possible. Moving on to 1993, his friend Jake Settle's daughter, Susan, introduced Chevy to a young woman by the name of Angie, who was Susan's sister. Now, Angie was living in Spokane, and from some accounts, she was a pot dealer. So Chevy ends up wooing this young woman and convincing her that she should become part of his polygamous life. And she eventually ends up getting married to Chevy. And it's been stated in numerous sources that the introduction of a second wife into their relationship put some stress on Katrina and Chevy's marriage which we will get to shortly. Chevy began following the route that another 
well-known white supremacist who we've talked about, Timothy McVeigh had taken. He began working the gun show circuit, selling various weapons and tactical gear, anything that would net him a profit and allow him to continue spreading his racist views. A couple of things that really shaped his worldview had taken place a few years prior to him beginning this polygamous lifestyle. In 1991, at least according to court records, a neighbor of Chevy's house was raided by the federal government. He saw this as federal overreach, and this really helped to enforce his already brewing anti-government sentiment. The 1992 murder at Ruby Ridge further cemented this belief into his head. I've already spoken about Ruby Ridge at length during the Oklahoma City bombing series, so I'm not going to get into Ruby Ridge that heavily. Basically, a man by the name of Randy Weaver, his wife, children, and a family friend were accused by the federal government of breaking various laws. Yes, Randy Weaver was tangentially associated with the white power movement. The federal government, in this case, FBI agents, surrounded their property at Ruby Ridge. A standoff ended up ensuing during which Weaver's son was shot and killed by agents as well as his wife and I believe one other individual, although I might be mistaken. This really set a lot of people off throughout the country, especially because the government tried to blame everything that had happened to the Weaver family on the Weavers themselves doing their level best to not take any of the responsibility for it, which would later come out the government was just as culpable in what happened that week as the Weaver family was, if not more culpable for it. So, now we've got Chevy. He's got all of this burning inside of his mind. He's filling other people's heads with his ideology, including his brothers and eventually his father. In 1993, he decides to take both of his wives and one of their children to the Aryan World Conference, which was a yearly event hosted by the Aryan nations. Some reports state that at this period of time, the stress that was on his marriage to Katrina really bubbled over, and the two ended up getting into a fight with Chevy beating her, giving her a black eye and a split lip. This kind of thing is not unheard of within the white power movement from some sources. It's actually quite common. She was eight or nine months pregnant at the time of this assault, which shows you to a good degree what a piece of shit Chevy was. 
already at this early stage of his life. According to reports, she had gotten into this argument with her husband because she did not like the role that she had been forced into in their polygamous lifestyle, which is understandable. After this incident, Chevy takes Karina and Angie to a cabin up near the Canadian border near Kettle Falls, Washington. After this, he decides that the whole family is going to move to Elohim City, which is in Oklahoma. We have covered Elohim City before with Timothy McVeigh. Hopefully you're starting to see a lot of parallels between him and Chevy Kehoe. They're moving in very similar circles to one another. They're living somewhat parallel lives as far as moving around constantly, working the gun show circuit. Although T McVeigh did not have any spouse or children. While at Elohim City, the violence displayed by Kehoe is said to have gotten much worse and people within this community kind of turned a blind eye to it as they believed that it was just man's God-given right to treat their spouse as their property and to do with as they would. This would lead to Angie deciding that she no longer wanted to be involved with him. And Angie began plotting to escape with the help of another woman in Elohim City. However, then this is a bit of an odd thing within his, you know, whole circle. Chevy's mother, Gloria, I guess not liking the direction that her son's life was taking or quite possibly being disgusted by the idea that her son was a polygamist, she actually got into Angie's ear and found out that she was unhappy with things, she was able to convince her son to allow Angie to return home. So he's got this stuff going on. You know, his life is in turmoil, and while he's there, it's alleged that Chevy came in contact with the Aryan Republican Army, another group that we covered in Oklahoma City, they were robbing banks. And it's been alleged that Chevy was supplying this group with guns with which they could go out and rob these banks, as well as possibly offering safe harbor to members of this gang. It is known that at some point during his stay here, he more likely than not had contact with Timothy McVeigh. Also during this period of time, Chevy decided that he was going to create his own organization known as the Aryan People's Republic. But unlike other organizations like the Aryan Republican Army and the Order, Chevy decided he was going to keep his organization small, as in his mind, 
the larger the organization, the easier it is for law enforcement to infiltrate and take them down. If he keeps it small, has a very tight-knit group of individuals who follow him, it's going to be a lot harder for the feds to get into what he's doing and also to even learn about their existence. Now, some sources state that Chevy began staying at a motel-slash-RV park in Spokane, Washington, known as The Shadows, and it's been alleged that Timothy McVeigh also spent time at this RV park and that the two of them had contact with one another during this period of time. As it is known that Chevy began putting together a plot to overthrow the United States government with his Aryan People's Republic. I'm going to touch on a couple of things that really cannot be verified but are in a lot of source material. It's alleged that in the summer of 1995, Kehoe ordered a member of his organization by the name of Farron Loveless to murder a skinhead associate by the name of Jeremy Scott. Apparently, Scott's wife had decided to join Kehoe in his polygamous relationship to which Jeremy Scott was, you know, adamantly opposed so, Kehoe orders this guy killed, and not very long after that, another skinhead by the name of John Cox was murdered by Kehoe. This because Cox was well aware of Kehoe's plans to wage war against the federal government, and Chevy realized that this man might be a liability as he was not necessarily in the inner circle. He has this guy murdered. This took place in, in or around Spokane, Washington. Before I dive into what's eventually going to be his major crime spree and claim to infamy, we're going to talk quickly about Kehoe's beliefs. He wanted to basically make Washington a whites-only state. He, his ideology and his beliefs were that through force, violence, and terrorism, he and his organization could force all other races out of the state of Washington and keep the United States government at bay and allow them to make this whites-only homeland in Washington State. But to do this, Kehoe needed weaponry as well as money, which brings in the Mueller family. And to do this, he targeted a gun dealer whom he had encountered on the gun show circuit. This would be William Mueller. I believe, although I may be mistaken on this, that this Mueller individual may have had some ties to Timothy McVeigh. In any event, on February 12th of 1995, this man, William Mueller, was 
51 years old at the time, he contacts authorities claiming that his home in Tilly, Arkansas was invaded by masked men who took $50,000 in guns, rare coins, and other various equipment. After this home invasion, it is known that Chevy and Farron Lovelace travel to Elm City, where they drop off some of the guns which had belonged to William Mueller. After this, Chevy is seen at more gun shows, and he is again placed at the Shadows in Spokane, Washington, where it's been stated that he is involved in the sale of illegal guns. We know what happens in April of 1995, and it's been alleged that prior to the bombing of the Mura building by Timothy McVeigh and various other persons unknown, that he met with Chevy Kehoe at the Shadows Motel again, and that Kehoe had had advanced knowledge of this attack. In fact, some sources, whether you believe them or not, state that Kehoe might have actually been involved in part of the either planning or the carrying out of the attack. My personal opinion is I doubt that he was physically involved in the carrying out of this crime, as it seems that Chevy was much more inclined to turn his attention to isolated acts of violence at targeted individuals. In June of 1995, Malcolm and Joel Friedman, who are believed by Kehoe and his various associates to be Jewish, are kidnapped at gunpoint near Colville by a single individual who is dressed in camouflage. This individual would later be identified by authorities as Farron Loveless. They are eventually released near the Shadows Motel. According to some reports, Chevy Kehoe had worked at the couple's supermarket and held a grudge against them. And it was in fact Chevy and his father, Kirby, who concocted the plan to kidnap the two of them in an effort to get money from them as they believed them to be fairly wealthy. It's been stated that Chevy and his father, who, as I spoke of not very long ago, had reconciled by this period of time, actually drove Loveless to the couple's home in order that he could kidnap them. On September 20th, 1995, Kehoe again sends out Loveless, who robs a jewelry store wholesaler by the name of Dick Morton. This individual was known to be a gun collector. And again, it's a home invasion with mass men going into the house and stealing Morton's gun collection, after which he is dragged from the house, driven to Spokane, and 
forced at gunpoint to withdraw $480 from an ATM machine before being released near the Shadows Motel. I think it's important to point out at this point that Kehoe and his associates obviously aren't thinking very clearly as it's known that Kehoe's staying in and around the Shadows Motel. He's doing all of these crimes in his own backyard and then releasing these victims nearby to where he lives. So it's obvious to anyone with a brain that A, these crimes are going to be reported and that eventually law enforcement is going to start looking into this area and trying to figure out who could possibly be responsible for it. Chevy doesn't stay in the Spokane area very long, however. He is, again, transient, just as McVeigh had been. By January of 1996, he is staying in Yukon, Oklahoma, with an associate of his by the name of Daniel Lewis Lee. After leaving Oklahoma, the pair heads towards Tilly, Arkansas, yet again, to the home of William Mueller and his family. Kehoe, and it was later confirmed that his father, Kirby, had robbed the Mueller family, but they decided to go back again and see what else they could get, but this time they weren't just going back to rob the family, however. Kehoe and Lewis decided to dress as FBI agents and attempted to enter the Mueller's house, only to find that the family was not there. When Mueller, his wife, Nancy, and their eight-year-old daughter, Sarah Elizabeth, returned to the home, the two men drew their weapons, approached them, and basically took them prisoner. When no information was forthcoming, Kehoe and Lewis produced cattle prods and be began shocking the couple's eight-year-old daughter to force the young girl to tell them where the valuables were located in the house. They located an estimated $50,000 in cash, weaponry, and other valuables within the house before hitting all three of the family members with a stun gun. And it was at this point that they pulled out plastic bags, which they placed over each of the individual's heads and tied closed with duct tape. They then began shocking the victims with the cattle prod as they slowly suffocated before their very eyes. Some reports state that Daniel Lee was unwilling to kill Sarah and that Chevy himself is the one that placed the plastic bag over her head, tied it shut, and shocked her well laughing about the entire situation, although these can not be confirmed. After the victims were dead, Kehoe and Lewis loaded their bodies into the back of Kehoe's vehicle and then drove out to Illinois Bayou. 
which is roughly an hour drive south of the Mueller's home in Tilly. Still in Arkansas, near Russellville. The two men then proceeded to tape rocks to the victims' bodies before throwing them into the water. After this murder, Chevy and Lee would both jokingly state that the Mueller family was subsiding on a liquid diet, an obvious reference to the fact that they had given the family a watery grave. From this robbery, the two men would flee the area. Again, I keep saying sources differ when discussing this case, and that's because there are various different timelines given for what happened. One timeline has it that Chevy used the proceeds from this robbery to purchase a parcel of land in Idaho where he put a travel trailer that he had purchased on the land in the hopes that this parcel would become a training ground for members of his organization. Other sources, however, say that the travel trailer was in fact stolen. In either case, Chevy gets his hands on this travel trailer and he's got these, you know, wild and crazy ideas that his... Aryan People's Republic is going to become a really big organization that's going to help him, you know, form this whites-only nation in the Pacific Northwest, and this is just really the first major step in making these dreams become a reality. Before that happens, though, they take the stolen weaponry to Elohim City, where... They give some of the guns away or sell it. Sources differ on what exactly happens there before heading back to the Pacific Northwest. Now, unbeknownst to Chevy and Lee, William Mueller wasn't some fly-by-night gun dealer. Many of the weapons that he had had actually been registered with the federal government were actually uh, in the federal firearms license registry and it appears as though he did this after the initial home invasion as a way to you know for the federal government as well as for he himself to be able to track weapons should he be robbed again the rest of these weapons were held in various storage units, some as far away as Ohio. So, Kehoe goes back to the Shadows Motel, where apparently he's renting a garage from the owner. The owner solved this weaponry and was curious, you know, how Kehoe, who didn't seem to really have a viable means of support had gotten all of this, and according to this manager, Kehoe told the man that he had bought them all from a gun dealer who had been going out of business. And it's from here that Kehoe begins really selling these guns that he stole from the 
Mueller family in earnest. And this is actually what's going to lead to Chevy and his gang being taken down by federal authorities. In February of 1996, a 45 caliber Colt pistol was recovered in Spokane when a man went into a pawn shop with it. Somehow the authorities were alerted to this man and they came and quickly arrested him. The gun turns out to belong to Nancy Mueller who along with her husband William and their daughter, at this point it's just suspected that they're missing. Authorities have no real idea as to what happened to the family, although they had discovered, you know, scenes of a struggle and a robbery at their home in Tilly, Arkansas. So authorities put the screws to this guy to try and find out where he got his hands on this gun, and eventually the name of Kirby Kehoe comes up. The man states that he purchased the gun from Kirby months prior, and the state of Washington secretly indicts Kirby Kehoe and thus begins the full-scale investigation of the Kehoe clan. On April 29, 1996, a pipe bomb goes off outside of the Spokane City Hall. Police initially have no idea who is behind this. They're investigating the Kehoe family, but they really can't tie this attack to them. Although eventually, Chevy and Lee would be fingered for this crime. The two men, as well as their various cohorts, however, are still going about doing their business as though nothing is wrong. Chevy's still rocking the mullet, smoking his doobies, selling guns plotting and planning this grand scheme of a whites-only nation in the Pacific Northwest. Then June 28, 1996 happens. A fisherman is out fishing in the Illinois Bayou when he finds the badly decomposed bodies of three individuals. Law enforcement is contacted the bodies are eventually removed from the water, and it's eventually shown that these bodies are those of the Mueller family. Here is where it gets interesting, as law enforcement is going over every piece of evidence on these bodies with a fine-tooth comb. They t very carefully take off the duct tape that is holding the plastic bags around the victims' heads. And when they do this, they discover very small pieces of paint, metallic paint, stuck to the duct tape. And this is very similar to the crimes of another man from Washington being Gary Leon Ridgway because he was linked, if you'll recall, to numerous crimes through the discovery of small flecks of metallic paint. Well, law enforcement now has this paint and they're trying to trace it back to wherever it might have come from. 
And they eventually zero in on Washington State, but they still don't know where exactly it came from. So while they're doing all of this, Chevy is still selling the guns that he got from the Mueller family. On August 18th of 1996, Kehoe associate and suspected murderer Loveless is lured from his home by federal authorities who are posing as members of the white resistance. They tell him that they have a group of Hispanic drug dealers in Priest River, Idaho, and that they need his help to assassinate these individuals as they are luring young girls into prostitution. Upon reaching the predetermined area, Loveless, who is said to have been heavily armed, is arrested. And eventually, realizing he has no choice, starts talking. He leads police to the buried body of Scott, who, if you'll recall, was the first known victim of Chevy Kehoe's crime spree. Word really gets back to Chevy quickly that Loveless has been arrested, so he decides that it's time for he and his family to take off. He heads to an area in northwest Montana that is termed by locals as the Yak. It's a river valley and he goes there because his family are living in the area namely his parents so chevy's hiding out there with his family unaware that the net is very quickly closing in around him on december 10th of 1996 a man is arrested in syax falls south dakota in possession of one of the Mueller's guns. This one was a rifle, and this man implicates Chevy Kehoe in both the theft of the weapons as well as their sale. Eventually, Chevy travels back up to Spokane, Washington, where he meets back up with his brother, Cheyenne, and they're just kind of laying low, trying to avoid tracked into attention to themselves. Well, they learned that this individual has been arrested in Syax Falls, and the two of them get freaked out. They decide to go on the lam. They end up in Frankfurt, Ohio, where the two Kehoe brothers, along with their wives and children, end up getting a place to rent. They pay a month's rent in advance, and they're Pretty much, again, they're on the lam, they're laying low, they think everything is fine and dandy. They don't believe that the police can tie them to any of these crimes or that the police even know that they exist. This was in January of 1997. Well, on February 15th of 1997, Cheyenne and Chevy are driving around in their Chevy Suburban. Didn't realize, or they obviously they didn't care that the plates on the vehicle had expired. So Ohio State troopers pull the vehicle over, thinking they've got a routine traffic stop, only for 
the driver of the vehicle, Cheyenne, to leap out and open fire on law enforcement. He escapes. Chevy escapes out the other side. Not long later, he is involved in another shootout with police. After which point, the two brothers vanish into the mists. The vehicle is impounded and very quickly it's discovered that they're onto something as over 4,000 rounds of ammunition are inside of this Suburban as well as FBI uniforms. So a nationwide manhunt begins for the two Kehoe brothers. On the 28th, the Kehoe's motorhome is discovered just outside of Casper, Wyoming. Inside of it, officers find various components to make bombs. That the two brothers travel all over the country from this point on, bouncing here and there, before eventually settling in Gunlock, Utah, where their wives are already staying, and it's it's suspected that this had been a you know last resort should something happen, and they all need to split up. That they would rendezvous in this area. So the Kehoe brothers both arrive in Gunlock, Utah separately and begin living their lives under assumed names and working at a nearby ranch. Supposedly while they're at this ranch, Chevy's disposition, which was never very pleasant to begin with, begins to change. Now, this is according to family members who were present at this ranch. Apparently Chevy began talking about possibly murdering their parents because they had a very pricey gun collection that Chevy figured would fund their life on the run. Now, there's different pieces to this story. According to Cheyenne, Chevy admitted to having killed his first wife, Karina, because she supposedly had... Native American ancestry. I can find no supporting documents to state that Karina was murdered or wasn't murdered. I'm going to assume that she more likely than was. Again, we're going off of Cheyenne's statements. He also said that his brother began showing a very disturbing interest in his own wife. And because of this... Cheyenne decided, you know, this isn't going to work out. This guy's going to end up killing me. I need to get the hell out of here. So on June 16th, 1997, Cheyenne leaves the ranch in Utah and drives to Colville, Washington, where he immediately turns himself over to authorities. On June 17th of 1997... Federal officials from the FBI show up in Gunlock, Utah and arrest Chevy as he is walking into a feed store. Cheyenne ends up getting 24 years in prison for his involvement with his brother's crimes. Well, on February 20th, 1998, Chevy ends up copying a plea bargain 
then in 1999, he's convicted in federal court for the 1996 murders of William Mueller and his family, for which he receives three life sentences in prison without the possibility of parole. His mother and brother Cheyenne served as witnesses against him at this trial. Well, his father ends up, I believe, getting 14 years in prison. Currently, Chevy is held at the United States Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana, with other members of the his organization getting various sentences. Daniel Lee Lewis, however, got the most extreme of all sentences, he was sentenced to death for four murders and was executed on July 14, 2020 at United States Penitentiary Terre Haute at the age of 47. And since that time, unfortunately, Chevy Kehoe and his various associates have become something of a rallying point for members within the white supremacist movement much as Timothy McVeigh had thankfully however he will never see the light of day and his various communications with the outside world are heavily monitored by the prison that he is incarcerated at we're going to end this episode here like to thank you for listening as I recounted the tale and various crimes of Chevy Kehoe and his family. Again, if you like this show, please consider subscribing to the Death Cast wherever it is you get your favorite true crime podcasts and leave a five star review. Until next time, the Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid.